Boo. Horror time. In literature, horror takes on many forms. The kind that comes to mind for most would probably be the gothic kind of horror. For example, Bram Stoker's Dracula or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. In fact, the first novel that is widely considered a work of horror fiction is Horace Walpole's Castle of Otranto, which I had the pleasure of analysing in secondary school. It was published in 1765, around 250 years ago. When it comes to gothic horror, or supernatural horror, you can expect to encounter ghosts, vampires, werewolves, and the like. You know, things that don't actually exist. Now fast forward to the 20th century. Things changed. And pretty dramatically. Now, many 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 things changed at a rapid pace in the 20th century. As the historian Eric Hobsbawm writes, the short 20th century, from the outbreak of World War I to the end of the Cold War, was the age of extremes. Technological advancements which led to the rise of cinema served to foreground the visual aspect of art, leading to more gore and grotesqueness. Developments in CGI enabled this. The spirit of the 20th century was also remarkably twisted. Already during the period of modernism, that is in the early 20th century, Sigmund Freud's and James Joyce's explorations into the subconscious threatened a firm bourgeois belief in human rationality and the comprehensibility of the natural world. So Sigmund Freud is known for psychoanalysis, while James Joyce is known for using stream of consciousness in his novels. The trajectory of intellectual history thus presaged the rise of a kind of horror that increasingly reflects the horror that man feels in the real world, a horror that supersedes that of the supernatural. Ultimately, much of literature inevitably reflects the social circumstances in which it was produced. When it comes to Western society, let's say American society, horror began to fixate on the disturbing undercurrents in modern society that existed beneath the veneer of progress and prosperity. Let's take Reagan's period or in office as an example. So during his time in office, Neoliberal economics created short-term economic growth, which was rather impressive for his time because the entire world was dealing with uh, recession, inflation, stagflation in the 70s, also known as the crisis decades. But in the very years um, that Reagan was in office, economic growth skyrocketed. Inflation was brought back to a minimal. However, Things went a bit of roses. Serial killings, yes, you heard that right, serial killings reached a new high in America. And it wasn't just serial killers that captured the imagination of horror writers who are confronting a more broken and incomprehensible kind of society. Cannibalism and cults also captured their imagination. Let me give you some examples. The Silence of the Lambs, and more recently, American Horror Story, Cult. Now, political and socio-economic dispossession and oppression are also figuring in horror. For instance, in the 2016 election version of American Horror Story, and more recently, Squid Game. Playing with very real human fears that are a result of our interactions with a world that is seemingly spinning out of our control. Psychological horror, 
has become increasingly popular. And it is extracts from a psychologically horrifying poem, Hall by Allen Ginsberg, that I'll be reading and discussing today. For Carl Solomon I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the negro streets at dawn looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night, who poverty and tatters and hollow-eyed and high set up smoking in the supernatural darkness of cold water flats floating across the tops of cities contemplating jazz, who bared their brains to heaven under the L and saw Mohammedan angels staggering on tenement roofs illuminated, who passed through universities with radiant cool eyes hallucinating Arkansas and bleak light tragedy among the scholars of war, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene odes on the windows of the skull, who cowered in unshaven rooms in underwear, burning their money in waste baskets and listening to the terror through the wall, who got busted in their pubic beards returning through Laredo with a belt of marijuana for New York, who ate fire in paint hotels or drank turpentine in Paradise Alley, death or purgatory their torsos night after night, with dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls, incomparable blind streets of shuddering cloud and lightning in the mind, leaping toward poles of Canada and Patterson, illuminating all the motionless world of time between. Peyote solidities of halls, backyard green trees, cemetery dawns, wine drunkenness over the rooftops, storefront burrows of tea-head, joyride, neon-blinking traffic light, sun and moon and tree vibrations in the roaring winter dusks of Brooklyn, ash-can rentings and kind king light of mind, who changed themselves to subways for the endless ride from Battery to Holy Bronx on Benzedrine until the noise of wheels and children brought them down, shuddering mouth-wracked and battered, bleak of brain all drained of brilliance in the drear light of zoo, who sank all night in submarine light of Bigfoots floated out and set through the stale beer afternoon in desolate Fugazis, listening to the crack of doom on the hydrogen jukebox, who taught continuously 70 hours from park to pad to bar to Bellevue to museums to the Brooklyn Bridge. A lost battalion of platonic conversationalists jumping down the stoops of fire escapes off windowsills off Empire States out of the moon, yakking, screaming, vomiting, whispering facts and memories and anecdotes and eyeball kicks and shocks of hospitals and jails and wars, whole intellects disgorged in total recall for seven days and nights with brilliant eyes, meet for the synagogue cast on the pavement, who vanished into nowhere, Zen, New Jersey leaving a trail of ambiguous picture postcards of Atlantic City Hall, suffering eastern sweats and Tangerian bone grindings and migraines of China and the junk withdrawal in Newark's bleak furnished room, who wandered around and around at midnight in the railroad yard, wondering where to go and when, leaving no broken heart, who lit cigarettes in boxcars, 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 racketing through snow toward lonesome farms in Grandfather Night, who studied Plotinus Poe, St. John of the Cross, Telepathy and Bob Coppola because the cosmos instinctively vibrated at their feet in Kansas, 
who laundered through the streets of Idaho seeking visionary Indian angels who were visionary Indian angels, who thought they were only mad when Baltimore gleamed in supernatural ecstasy, who jumped in limousines with a Chinaman of Oklahoma on the impulse of winter midnight, street light, small town rain, who lounged hungry and lonesome through Houston seeking jazz or sex or soup and followed the brilliant Spaniard to converse about America and eternity, a hopeless task, and so took ship to Africa, who disappeared into the volcanoes of Mexico, leaving behind nothing but the shadows of dungarees and the lava and ash of poetry scattered in fireplace Chicago, who reappeared on the west coast investigating the FBI in beards and shorts with big pacifist eyes, sexy in their dark skin, passing out incomprehensible leaflets, who burned cigarette holes in their arms protesting the narcotic tobacco haze of capitalism, who distributed super-communist pamphlets in Union Square, weeping and undressing while the sirens of Los Alamos wailed them down, and wailed down wall, and the Staten Island Ferry also wailed, who broke down crying in white gymnasiums, naked and trembling before the machinery of other skeletons, who bit detectives in their neck and shrieked with delight in police cars for committing no crime but their own wild cooking, padres tea and intoxication, who howled on their knees in the subway and were dragged off the roof, waving genitals and manuscripts, who let themselves be fucked in the ass by saintly motorcyclists and screamed with joy, who blew and were blown by those human seraphim, the sailors, caresses of Atlantic and Caribbean love, who bawled in the morning, the evenings, in rose gardens, in the grass of public parks and cemeteries, scattering their semen freely to whomever come who may, who hiccuped endlessly, trying to giggle, but wound up with a sob behind a partition in a Turkish bath when the blonde and naked angel came to pierce them with a sword, who lost their love boys to the three old shoes of fate, the one-eyed shoe of the heterosexual dollar, the one-eyed shoe that winks out of the womb, and the one-eyed shoe that does nothing but sit on her ass and snip the intellectual golden threads of the craftsman's loom, who copulated ecstatic and insatiate with a bottle of beer, a sweetheart, a package of cigarettes, a candle, and fell off the bed, and continued along the floor and down the hall and ended fainting on the wall with the vision of ultimate cunt and come eluding the last gizm of consciousness who sweetened the snatches of a million girls trembling in the sunset and were red-eyed in the morning but prepared to sweeten the snatch of the sunrise, fleshing buttocks under barns and naked in the lake, who went out whoring through Colorado in myriad stolen nightcars, N.C., secret hero of these poems, Coxman and Adonis of Denver, joy to the memory of his innumerable lays of girls in empty lots and diner backyards, movie houses, rickety rows on mountain tops and caves, or with gaunt waitresses in familiar roadside, lonely petticoat upliftings, and especially secret gas station solipsisms of John's and hometown alleys too, who faded out in vast sordid movies, were shifted in dreams, woke on a sudden Manhattan, and picked themselves up out of basements, hungover with heartless tokay and horrors of Third Avenue, iron dreams, and stumbled to unemployment offices, who walked all night with their shoes full of blood on the snowbanked docks, waiting for a door in the East River to open to a room full of steam heat and opium, who created great suicidal dramas on the apartment cliff banks of the Hudson under the wartime blue floodlight of the moon, and the heads shall be crowned with laurel in oblivion who ate the lamb stew of the imagination or digested the crab at the muddy bottom of the rivers of Bowery, 
who wept at the romance of the streets with their pushcarts full of onions and bad music, who sat in boxes breathing in the darkness under the bridge, and rose up to build harpsichords in their lofts, who coughed on the sixth floor of Harlem, crowned with flame under the tubercular sky, surrounded by orange crates of theology, who scribbled all night rocking and rolling over lofty incantations, which in the yellow morning were stanzas of gibberish who cooked rotten animals, lung, heart, feet, tail, boshed, and tortillas, dreaming of the pure vegetable kingdom, who plunged themselves under meat trucks looking for an egg, who threw their watches off the roof to cast their ballot for eternity outside of time, and alarm clocks fell on their heads every day for the next decade, who cut their wrists three times successively unsuccessfully, gave up and were forced to open antique stores where they thought they were growing old and cried, were burned alive in their innocent flannel suits on Madison Avenue amid blasts of leaden verse and the tanked-up clatter of the iron regiments of fashion and the nitroglycerin shrieks of the fairies of advertising and the mastered gas of sinister intelligent editors all were run down by the drunken taxicabs of absolute reality who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge, this actually happened, and walked away unknown and forgotten into the ghostly days of Chinatown soup alleyways and fire trucks, not even one free beer, who sang out of their windows in despair, fell out of the subway window, jumped in the filthy passeig, leaped on negroes, cried all over the street, danced on broken wine glasses barefoot, smashed phonograph, records of nostalgic European 1930s, German jazz, finished the whiskey, and threw up, groaning into the bloody toilet, moans in their ears and a blast of colossal steam whistles, who barreled down the highways of the past, journeying to each other's hot rod Golgotha jail solitude watch or Birmingham jazz incarnation, who drove cross-country 72 hours to find out if I had a vision, or you had a vision, or he had a vision to find out eternity, who journeyed to Denver, who died in Denver, who came back to Denver, and waited in vain, who watched over Denver, and brooded, and loaned in Denver, and finally went away to find out the time, and now Denver is lonesome for her heroes, who fell on their knees in hopeless cathedrals, praying for each other's salvation and light and breasts, until the soul illuminated its hair for a second, who crashed through their minds in jail, waiting for impossible criminals with golden heads and the charm of reality in their hearts, who sang sweet blues to Alcatraz, who retired to Mexico to cultivate the habit, or Rocky Mount to tender Buddha, or Tangiers to boys, or Southern Pacific to the black locomotive, or Harvard to Narcissus, to Woodlawn, to the daisy chain or grave, who demanded sanity trials accusing the radio of hypnotism and were left with their insanity in their hands and a hung jury, who threw potato salad at CCNY lecturers on Dadaism and subsequently presented themselves on the granite steps of the madhouse with shaven heads and harlequin speech of suicide, demanding instantaneous lobotomy, and who were given, instead, the concrete void of insulin, matrizole, electricity, hydrotherapy, psychotherapy, occupational therapy, ping-pong, and amnesia, who in humorless protest overturned only one symbolic ping-pong table, resting briefly in Catatonia, returning years later truly bald except for a wig of blood and tears and fingers to the visible madmen doom of the wards of the mad towns of the east, pilgrim states, rocklands, and greystones fettered halls, 
bickering with the echoes of the soul, rocking and rolling in the midnight solitude bench, dolmen realms of love, dream of life, a nightmare, bodies turned to stone as heavy as the moon, with mother finally, and the last fantastic book flung out of the tenement window, and the last door closed at 4am, and the last telephone slammed at the wall in reply, and the last furnished room emptied down to the last piece of mental furniture, a yellow paper rose twisted on a wire hanger in the closet, and even that imaginary, nothing but a hopeful little bit of hallucination. Ah, Carl, while you are not safe, I am not safe, and now you're really in the total animal soup of time, and who therefore ran through the icy streets obsessed with the sudden flash of the alchemy of the use of the ellipsis catalogue of variable measure and the vibrating plane, who dreamt and made incarnate gaps in time and space through images juxtaposed and trapped the archangel of the soul between two visual images and joined the elemental verbs and set the noun and dash of consciousness together, jumping with sensation of pater omnipotens eterna deus to recreate the syntax and measure of poor human prose and stand before you, speechless and intelligent and shaking with shame, rejected yet confessing out the soul to conform to the rhythm of thought in his naked and endless head, the madman balm and angel beat in time, unknown, yet putting down here what might be left to say in time come after death, and rose reincarnate in the ghostly clothes of jazz, in the gold horn shadow of the band, and blew the suffering of America's naked mind for love into an alley alley lama lama sabachthani saxophone cry that shivered the cities down to the last radio with the absolute heart of the poem of life butchered out of their own bodies, good to eat a thousand years. 2. What sphinx of cement and aluminium bashed upon their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination? Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans and unobtainable dollars, children screaming under the stairways, boys sobbing in armies, old men weeping in the parks. Moloch, Moloch, nightmare of Moloch, Moloch the loveless, mental Moloch, Moloch the heavy judger of men, Moloch the incomprehensible prison, Moloch the crossbone, soulless, jailhouse and congress of sorrows, Moloch whose buildings are judgment, Moloch the vast stone of war, Moloch the stunned government, Moloch whose mind is pure machinery, Moloch whose blood is running money, Moloch whose fingers are ten armies, Moloch whose breast is a cannibal dynamo, Moloch whose ears are smoking tomb, Moloch whose eyes are a thousand blind windows, Moloch whose skyscrapers stand in the long streets like endless Jehovah's, Moloch whose factories dream and croak in the fog, Moloch whose smokestacks and antenna crown the cities, Moloch whose love is endless oil and stone, Moloch whose soul is electricity and banks, Moloch whose poverty is the spectre of genius, Moloch whose fate is a cloud of sexless hydrogen, Moloch whose name is the mind, Moloch in whom I sit lonely, Moloch in whom I dream angels, crazy in Moloch, cocksucker in Moloch, black love and madness in Moloch, Moloch who entered my soul early, Moloch in whom I am a consciousness without a body, Moloch who frightened me out of my natural ecstasy, Moloch whom I abandon, wake up in Moloch, light streaming out of the sky, Moloch, Moloch, robot apartments, invisible suburbs, skeleton treasuries, blind capitals, demonic industries, spectral nations, invincible madhouses, granite cocks, monstrous bombs. They broke their backs lifting Moloch to heaven. Pavements, trees, radios, tons, lifting the city to heaven which exists and is everywhere about us. Visions, omens, hallucinations, miracles, ecstasies, gone down the American river.
dreams, adorations, illuminations, religions, the whole boatload of sensitive bullshit, breakthroughs, over the river, flips and crucifixions, gone down the flood, highs, epiphanies, despairs, ten years animal screams and suicides, minds, new loves, mad generation, down on the rocks of time, real holy laughter in the river, they saw it all, the wild eyes, the holy yells, they bade farewell, they jumped off the roof, to solitude, waving, carrying flowers, down to the river, into the street. 3. Carl Solomon I'm with you in Rockland, where you're madder than I am. I'm with you in Rockland, where you must feel very strange. I'm with you in Rockland, where you imitate the shade of my mother. I'm with you in Rockland, where you've murdered your twelve secretaries. I'm with you in Rockland, where you laugh at this invisible humour. I'm with you in Rockland, where we are great writers on the same dreadful typewriter. I'm with you in Rockland, where your condition has become serious and is reported on the radio. I'm with you in Rockland, where the faculties of the skull no longer admit the worms of the senses. I'm with you in Rockland, where you drink the tea of the breasts of the spinsters of Utica. I'm with you in Rockland, where you pun on the bodies of your nurses, the harpies of the Bronx. I'm with you in Rockland, where you scream in a straitjacket that you're losing the game of the actual ping-pong of the abyss. I'm with you in Rockland, where you bang on the catatonic piano, the soul is innocent and immortal, it should never die ungodly in an armed madhouse. I'm with you in Rockland, whose fifty more shocks will never return your soul to its body again from its pilgrimage to a cross in the void. I'm with you in Rockland, where you accuse your doctors of insanity and plot the Hebrew socialist revolution against the fascist national Golgotha. I'm with you in Rockland, where you'll split the heavens of Long Island and resurrect your living human Jesus from the superhuman tomb. I'm with you in Rockland, where there are 25,000 mad comrades, all together singing the final stanzas of the International. I'm with you in Rockland, where we hug and kiss the United States under our bedsheets, the United States that coughs all night and won't let us sleep. I'm with you in Rockland, where we wake up electrified out of the coma by our own souls, airplanes roaring over the roof they come to drop angelic bombs. The hospital illuminates itself, imaginary walls collapse, oh skinny legions run outside, oh starry spangled shock of mercy, the eternal war is here, oh victory, forget your underwear, we are free. I'm with you in Rockland. In my dreams, you walk dripping from a sea journey on the highway across America in tears to the door of my cottage in the western night. Okay, so Hall by Ellen Ginsberg. So, the poem was published in 1956, and to give you some context, that was like, um, kind of peak tensions between USA and Soviet Union, I think. There was the time of Eisenhower, right, if I'm not wrong, and that's the period of containment. So tension, political tensions were high, and um, but even though there were political tensions, the economy of the United States was actually doing well because in the post-war era, um, the West was actually like experiencing record growth, right, the golden years. So I think this tension is something that is explored in the poem and. Because of to re- in response to these um, socio-political circumstances and economic circumstances, right, a few poets in America, I think around New York, um, started writing in a style called beat poetry. So they're called the Beat Generation, and most of their work was published in the nineteen fifties. And 
I'm quoting Wikipedia now, so the central elements of beat culture are the rejection of standard narrative values, making a spiritual quest, the exploration of American and Eastern religions, the rejection of economic materialism, explicit portrayals of the human condition, experimentation with drugs, sexual liberation, and exploration. I think it's pretty evident that all these are present in Hull. I mean, Hull is such a long and expensive work, right? And it really contains all of these motifs. So, yeah. So, yeah. Where is the horror in Hull? I mean, to me, Hull is psychological horror, really. It's a psychological horror that not everyone experiences. It's a kind of it's a it's a niche kind of horror because like the problem that Ginsburg or the speaker faces is a very unique problem that I think only the intelligentsia experiences. So after reading the poem, because I actually read it yesterday, and I'm recording this part the following day. Yeah, like after reading the poem, I actually got a newfound appreciation of it, and in fact, I felt quite emotional because it's quite relatable. So I was texting someone afterwards and I said, Hull is like the product of a tormented soul who seeks to describe the world that is hostile and alienating to him. And the poem itself reflects the effect that that alienation and hostility has on him because his ideals, um, for example, communistic ideals or whatever, are in complete contrast to those that currently rule society, for example, materialism, capitalism, um and what have you not. So really, this poem is like a manifestation of the psychological struggle between the self and the larger system. And when you consider that struggle, it really is quite psychologically stressful because you're so powerless until you're just a random individual and you're contending with a system that you can't get out of, even no matter how hard you try to extricate yourself from the situation, no matter how um, how critical you are of it, how many treatises you write criticizing the system you're in, you're still a part of it. Yeah. And so, ultimately, right, this poem is very much just an intellectual exercise. And, and so, because it's an intellectual exercise, right, it ultimately only happens in the brain of the writer, uh, Ginsburg, for example, over here. So, like, because it only happens in the minor, it's so interiorized, although it's talking about an exterior world. Uh, I just felt like the intellectual and artistic torment that Ginsberg was conveying is really visceral and raw. Like, it's just, it's just straight out of his brain. And in fact, I think in an interview with Paris Review, right, he said that he wrote Hull, the entirety of Hull, right? I think in one sitting or whatever. It's, it was very stream of consciousness, consciousness and he was on drugs. So... Yeah, it's just really organic feelings, really raw feelings. Um, and also something interesting about this poem is that, you know, the violence that he describes, that he sees all around, you know, persecution, being persecuted by the police and all that. Uh, I remember this one, there's this image, really striking, like poets trying to reach for eggs, but then getting their hand crushed by meat trucks, you know. The violence that the speaker feels has been enacted on people like him, like intelligentsia, the LGBT community, <clears throat> is paradoxically reenacted on, on himself by himself as he goes mad in this poem. 
Like, because, as I've said earlier, it only happens in his mind, right? Much of it is just an intellectual exercise going on in his, going on in his mind. This violence that he describes is actually reenacted by himself, on himself. And I think that's pretty sad, yeah. And eventually, he only finds solace by focusing on Carl Solomon, to whom the poem is dedicated, and who is his lover, I believe. So yeah, talking more about the form of this poem, right, Hall... Um, I think one thing that would strike you is really the repetition in the form. I mean, the first the first section of the poem, it's really like, I saw the best minds of my generation, destroyed by madness, starving hysterical naked, who da 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 da, who da da da, so many who's. It's just, he just keeps listing, it's cumulative. So it, gets, so it has like an obsessive and overwhelming feel to it. And I think that really reflects how the hostile external world has, it just like, influences and kind of dominates your mental space yeah and it's so repetitive and endless that i think stylistically you become conscious of the words as just abstract terms you know and some of them aren't even like they don't even string together a prop a coherent or meaningful sentence like really when i was reading it it just felt like rapping english words it's just you just felt so alienated from it and i guess that alienating feeling also goes back to reinforce the alienation that he feels from the surrounding world yeah, it's really unreal. Uh. And also, yeah, as I said earlier, right, it's just an intellectual exercise. And so the thing about the form is that you see it actually gets from a really, really long, cumulative kind of listing to a shorter, well, comparably shorter section, which is which consists solely of exclamatory sentences. And then the last poem is more reflective, more pensive. And you see that that trajectory, right, it actually, I think, that reflects the realization on the speaker's part that that intellectual violence that he was engaged in in the first and second parts of the poem was really kind of ineffectual, and at best, it's masochist, and I mean, not at best, I mean, it, it could even be masochistic, so, like, because he realizes it's ineffectual, he eventually returns to focus on his relationship with Carl Solomon, um, yeah, which provides him solace and which is something he has agency over, some agency at least, um, compared to him trying to uh, dissect the world, analyze the world and change society, which is something you can't really do. Yeah, yeah. so I think form-wise, that's all I have to say. I really, really like um, how the forms interact with each other, like the forms of the three different poems within the larger poem, because it really, the narrative that is created by it is really redemptive of sorts. Like, it feels cathartic even. When I was reading it, I felt such relief because, you know, the first two poem, the first two sections of the poem are filled with such long sentences, exclamatory sentences. It's just never-ending rapid fire, right? And then you get to the third part, which just begins with Carl Solomon. It's just a name, and it's just two words, three, um, four syllables. And it's just, it felt liberating for me, like, like a final heave of relief, or just a, a fresh, fresh breath of air after a long, long lecture or something. Yep. So content-wise, I think, as I've alluded earlier, right, this poem is his, is, kind of reflects the struggle between the self and the larger system, right? So content-wise, really get themes of um, personal themes and political themes. So personal, it would be like his relationships with other poets, his relationship with Carl Solomon, 
um, yeah, but politically politically speaking, there would be like Cold War concerns. I think does he mention atomic bombs? Oh yeah, I'm not sure <laughs> But like, yeah, political concerns. I can't remember where, but we'll go through them later. And really, like content wise, in the whirlpool of chaos that the content really is, right? Like he's just listing all the things that he finds undesirable in society. Um, the only thing that seems to be real is the speaker's relationship with the addressee of the poem, Carl Solomon. And yeah, I think there's not much to say for the content. Like, really, it's quite straightforward. The motifs, as I've said earlier, when talking about the beat generation, um, are suicide, death, hedonism, drugs, mental illness, you know, things that are um, subversive, things that um, kind of all point to some kind of escape from society. I mean, suicide is an escape, duh. Hedonism is also a kind of escape. Drugs, duh. Mental illness, it's, I guess, a failed kind of escape. Yeah. So yeah, let me go through the poem line by line. Uh, not line by line, there's so many lines. Okay, so first poem. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving, hysterical, naked. So apparently this is a meme, but I don't know. I'm not on Twitter anymore. But yeah. Um, best minds of my generation destroyed by madness here you have the juxtaposition of the self and the other you know best minds more personal right like individuals but destroyed by madness madness being like um, the culture that's around and I, I mean like for his time it would be like materialism um, that cold war frenzy you know was it McCarthyism yet I'm not sure I think so ah oh, I've forgotten everything but yes and then like starving hysterical naked um, that that helps to build up the hostility of the surroundings because like really it's really unfriendly material conditions so even though america was experiencing post-war economic boom right um that boom was not equally shared and in fact um the new kind of society that was created was not fair to certain kinds of professions for example poets because um poets by nature are more idealistic right things have it's more uh the things that they create are intangible immaterial and immaterial goods are less valued in the material society that we now live in yep um next angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night so once again you have a contrast um, between the angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection so that's like a very pure almost like um, idealistic wish-like image compared with the second half of the sentence, like Starry Dynamo in the Machinery of Night. It's a very violent industrial image. Yeah, and also like per- Machinery of Night, it also points like, it also suggests perversion of nature. And and this is something that he comes back to at the very end of the poem. Um, okay, let's go there. Like at the very end of the poem, right? The third poem. In my dreams, you walk dripping from a sea journey on the highway across America and tears the door of my cottage in the Western Night. The night reappears in this instant, in this instance, but it's no longer industrialized. It's no longer painted as some kind of violent, um, you know, perverted kind of thing. It's just the night. Indifferent as it is, at least it is nature and it is a, it's redemptive. La. <laughs> okay, next. Back to the first poem. Uh, who were expelled from the academies for crazy and publishing obscene notes on the windows of the skull. I mean, back again, hostile society. Here, you get moral panic and legal persecution. So, moral panic because they're publishing obscene oaths, right? And then legal persecution because um, 
the laws of the country are uh, uh, shaped by moral stand by pre- prevailing moral standards, and these moral standards are like that's kind of hypocritical. I mean, okay, wait, I'm digressing, but you get the point. It's the same as like Oscar Wilde being persecuted for being homosexual. Okay, next. With dreams, with drugs, with waking nightmares, alcohol and cock and endless balls. So like, really, this, uh, the escapism part, lot, like trying to exile yourself, you know, imposing exile upon yourself, trying to escape from a society that you disagree uh, intellectually with, through, in this instance, hedonism. It's kind of a self-destructive coping mechanism, to be very honest. And then, this, who changed themselves to subways for the endless, right, blah, 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 blah. Battered bleak of brain, all drained of brilliance in the dreary light of zoo. Okay, I mean, I don't have much to say for this, but in the first poem, there are not all the who, whatever lines are short. Lah. Most of them, okay, most of them are quite long, but some of them are really long. They're like paragraphs long. And I don't know, I just like the sound of them. It's like, it's really just rapping. It's overwhelming. It's just so stream of consciousness. Yeah. Okay, next. Similarly, who lost their love boys, the three old shoes of fate. Then he goes to describing uh, each fate, each shoe of fate. Lah. Okay. Um, oh yeah, and also like in this instance, right, he uses quite technical terms like, I don't know, I found heterosexual dollar quite inter- quite technical. Um, yeah, I don't know, I just got an essayistic style from it. So this reinforces the perspective um the fact that the perspective of this poem is that of a member of the intelligentsia, right? Um, yeah. Okay, next. Who created a great suicidal drama, so the apartment cliff banks of the Hudson under the wartime blue floodlight of the moon and the hits shall be crowned with laurel and oblivion. So, he talks about motifs of suicide, right? I mean, it figures here. And also, um, there's mention of war, so the I think the beat poet's most likely probably would oppose um, the the American waging of war on the Second World and even in the Third World during the Cold War. And but um, but this anti-war movement does didn't really achieve much, at least in the early in the early phases of the Cold War. Um, in fact, the most people were at least for American involvement abroad, American. Uh, containment of Soviet aggression. I mean, that's why Truman also like lost, right? Did he lose? I think he lost, yeah, to Eisenhower, who was a more hardline uh, Republican. You know, because they lost, they kind of lost the war in Korea during Truman's time, and so they elected mm-hmm. Eisenhower, and then they went from they just went to like containment and roll back communism, threatened to use nuclear weapons, yeah. But obviously, their their protests didn't achieve much, lah, and so Ellen Ginsberg recognizes here that they'll only be celebrated in the future, but they have no place in the present. You know, their heads shall be crowned with laurel, but that's in oblivion. Okay, next. Ah, the striking image. Who plunged themselves under meat trucks looking for an egg. It's a really powerful image because, like, it's just saying poets can't make a living in this new world. They're looking for an egg, food, right? But they get crushed. Um... Also, like, eggs connote hope, rebirth, whereas meat trucks remind me of, like, the industrial cruelty of modern agriculture, of abattoirs, and so, yeah, again, contrasts. This poem is full of contrasts. And then, next line, who cut their wrists three times successively, unsuccessfully, 
unsuccessfully gave up and were forced to open antique stores where they thought they were growing old and cried. So, okay, once again, self-harm, okay? Trigger warning, by the way. Uh, that's kind of late. But yes, um, and then antique stores, that's kind of an interesting um, metaphor? It's a metaphor. Okay, but it's an interesting image, at least. Because antique stores have no relevance in contemporary society, right? And that's the same for the poets because they're now isolated from contemporary society um, because they don't share the same values, because their, um, their artistic products are not valued as much as material goods. Mm -hmm. And so the first section of Hull ends with with the absolute heart of the poem of life butchered out of their own bodies, good to eat a thousand years. So once again, uh, the uh, putting material desires above immaterial desires, at least from society's perspective, because um, it's butchering out the heart of the poem of life, something immaterial, something transcendental, uh, and turning it into food, into nutrition, good to eat a thousand years. So extracting material, material, what's it all? Extracting something material out from something immaterial. Yep. Okay, now moving on to the second part of the poem. Oh, this is where all the exclamation marks come in. And although the first line begins with the first line has uh first sentence uses a question question mark la it's a depth it's no 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 it's an interrogative sentence. Yeah. So what sphinx of cement and aluminum bashed open their skulls and ate up their brains and imagination. This carries on from the ending of the first section, you know, like the prioritizing of material over the immaterial. Because here similarly it's cement and aluminium, things that we are that we use to construct really tangible things to build cities. Um wait, what was I saying? But yeah, cement and aluminium bashing open skulls and eating up brains and imagination. So and in fact it doesn't apply just to poets by trade, you know, it applies to everyone. Like really in a material society where everyone is just uh, concerned with making money and spending money uh, imagination really just like it's not tended to people no longer imagine people no longer make art and I think that's quite mm, unfortunate yeah okay then now there's this recurring name yeah it's a name in the poem Moloch so um, I think I put it somewhere so yeah what the heck is Moloch right so I'm gonna quote Wikipedia again Moloch since the medieval period has often been portrayed as a bull-headed idol with outstretched hands over a fire. So this depiction takes the brief mentions of Moloch in the Bible and combines them with various sources, including ancient accounts of Carthaginian child sacrifice and the legend of the Minotaur. Moloch has been figuratively used in reference to a person or a thing which demands or requires a very costly sacrifice. So in Hull's instance, Moloch would be the capitalistic system, you know, a system with a capital S um, that demands of us our labor, of our submission to the ideals that rule society in order for us to simply meet ends, make ends meet. Yeah, okay. So, Moloch, solitude, filth, ugliness, ash cans, and unobtainable dollars. In this instance, the speaker is attacking contemporary society, you know, equating society to characterizing it as filthy and ugly. And it's also chastising it for its failures, like ash cans, children screaming, boys sobbing, old men weeping. Um, yeah, as I said much earlier, this poem to me is like an 
intellectual exercise, right? So he's really trying to get back at society by criticizing it, by chastising it. So Morlock, Morlock, Morlock. It's really like, um, like he's shouting at society. He wants to be heard, but we all know that nah, he will only be heard by a fellow poets. Okay, then next, yeah, I just skip to the last part of the second section because the rest of it is really quite repetitive. So real holy laughter in the river. They saw it all. The wild eyes, the holy yells. They bade farewell. They jumped off the roof to solitude, waving, carrying flowers down to the river, into the street. So here it's a very romantic view of suicide, you know, because like um, while jumping off, they still like bid farewell. They still wave. So there's a self-consciousness to the act of committing suicide. There's a almost theatrical aspect to it because you're not doing it in silo. You're doing it while people are watching. And Carrying flowers, I think this reminded me of Ophelia, Ophelia, you know, uh, from Shakespeare's Hamlet. So once again, the theatrical aspect of committing suicide, right? And I mean, down to the river, Ophelia dies in some water body. I can't remember what. I think it's a lake. Yeah, yeah. But even though um much of this line is romantic, right? It's a romantic view of suicide. It's very much imaginative. You're imagining a potential escape, a romantic escape from the banalities of a society you vehemently disagree with, um, this romanticism is undercut by the final three words, into the street. So there's no river to begin with, it's just the street. Like, even if you want to escape romantically, even if you want to commit suicide, you can't. And I think that's quite sad lah. Okay, third poem, third section of the poem, Carl Solomon. Oh my god, I really love how this poem begins with a name. Because like, when you look at the overall flow, the form of the poem, right, the position of the name here suggests that it is a sort of a trigger which causes the speaker to then engage in some meditative mantra of sorts addressing Carl. It's like he's been drowning um, many leagues under the sea and then suddenly there's this, um, I don't know, this anchor that falls from above and he sees rays of sunlight. That's, an, that's a way to pull yourself out of this situation. And it, and it is in the form of a name, Carl Solomon. So in the third section of the poem, there's another name which is repeated every other line. Every other line. So Rockland. So Rockland is a mental asylum in America. And Carl Solomon, I believe he existed, um, was interned there in the mental asylum. So he's, the speaker says, Carl Solomon, I'm with you in Rockland where you're madder than I am. So in this instance, it's quite interesting because um, the speaker now takes on the identity of the sane person, you know, at least in the context of this relationship. He's the one offering comfort. And I think because he realizes that there are people, um, when I say people who are worse off than him, I'm not sure, but that he has love to give still and there are people for him to care for, it's a way for him to, you know, find his own place in society still and he finds it in Carl Solomon whom he can give love and protect. Yep. So, next. I'm with you in Rockland, where there are 25,000 mad comrades all together singing the final stanzas of the international. I really love this image of solidarity and kind of hope because, like, you see comrades all together singing the final stanzas. Final stanzas, uh, like, suggesting that they have made it pretty far, right? At least they've made it through most of the song. International, the international is like the anthem of communism by the way yeah so they've survived 
they've been able to continue sustaining the ideals even though um, the odds aren't in their favor, at least in a capitalistic society. And the fact that they're seeing the final stanzas means that they'll get to rest soon, which is a comforting, comforting thought, I guess, yeah. And also the image of solidarity here uh, is a breath of fresh air because really the rest of the poem is just so solitary. It's just an individual struggling against society. Yep. And yeah, the final part of the poem, I guess. Um, I'm with Win Rockland. In my dreams, you walk dripping from a sea journey on the highway across America in tears to the door of my cottage in a western night. So here really it's an image of reunion, overcoming of pain. Um, like Carl walks, right? Even though he's interned at uh, an, a mental asylum. I think that's, an, that's really him overcoming his pain and being able to bounce back stronger. Dripping from a sea journey. Like all that pain that he has gone through. is just dripping away and he's just walking through it, braving through it. Uh, walking on the highway. Highway is a dangerous place, right? But he's still able to track all the way, even though that's like, even though the highway isn't like a specific route for him to get to one place to the other because he's not driving, right? But he's still able to bring himself uh, across the entire continent on his feet, um, on a on a highway. Ah, oh, okay, whatever. But yeah, um, it's a hopeful line because like. The physical and social world in this line is no longer hostile since you can walk unharmed, you know, across the entire continent. I don't think that's something you can actually do in America, probably. I don't know. Would you get shot? Or would you get killed by a bear? I don't know. But then, yeah. He walks across the continent um, to find the speaker in a cottage of his own. And, you know, like, throughout the entire poem has been dispossessed, disenfranchised, oppressed. But in this instance, he actually has a possession and an, and an abode of his own and so yeah it is a it is a hopeful image i guess and also like it reminds him that things aren't all that bad you know you still have things that uh you like the things that you own um things that you are at peace with in even though they exist in a society even though you exist in a society that um you're a huge fan of yep and yeah in the western night you know in this image they get of someone walking across the continent on a highway under the firmament of the night, right? Nature here isn't hostile, it's just indifferent. It's, um, yeah, you're just at peace now, and no one's there to bother you. Um, yeah, and he eventually reunites, at least in his dreams, with, um, the speaker. I think that's all. I mean, it's still obsessive law because it's still, I'm with Rin Rockland, I'm with Rin Rockland. He's obviously still not well, but at least it's more meditative, it's less intense, less disturbing, less insane now. Yeah. At least he's found some peace, I think. Okay, that's all I have for this poem. I hope this help. I hope this episode gave you a better, um, a more nuanced, and I wouldn't say nuanced, a more unconventional appreciation of horror in literature. Yeah. So, see you next time. Bye bye.